International Teacher Magazine presents Talking About the ITM Podcast with your host, Andy Hamden. Welcome to this episode of the ITM Podcast when we're talking about the future of learning. My name is Andy Hamden. My guests today are Professor Deborah Eyre and Kevin Bartnett, both leaders in their field. Let's just start at what the needs of uh, students are in 2022. The needs that you are coming across uh, in your work uh, with the schools that you uh, engage with. In your, in your view, how, if at all, have the learning needs of young people changed while you've been working in these areas in the last 20 or so years? Perhaps we'll start with you, uh, Deborah. What, what do you see changing? So they, sometimes we think that, you know, everything that students need is new. And I don't really believe that. I think some of the things are exactly the same as they were when I started teaching. They're just enduring. But there are other things that are very much more to the fore now. So firstly, in an increasingly complex world, Children and young people need to feel confident to be able to figure things out for themselves. So in school, that's part of the school skill set that we kind of need to give them. So instead of being sort of passive learners, doing whatever we've told them to do, we need to create education which, which deliberately problematizes things in a positive kind of interesting kind of way. So that they kind of get used to that and they get used to the idea that there are some things that are uncertain or unknown and that they, they themselves can bring their own thoughts and ideas and that those may be the, the thoughts and ideas that really change the world. That we need them and their ideas is, is really part of what they need to know and understand in a way even more so than ever before. So in some ways, things are as they have been, but there are certain pressures building up which are, are making things uh, important to do in perhaps new kinds of ways. Kevin, what are your observations in this area? Well, I think Deborah and I may have suspected we'd be in violent agreement fairly frequently. So, so um, I would absolutely echo what Deborah said. Uh, I'll try and add some value to her thoughts um, because for me they were they were spot on. If we step back to thirty thousand feet, and that's what CGC I think is good at, is rethinking the entire system, not just tweaking bits of it. And CGC is the Common Ground Collaborative yes. that you're working with at the moment. Yeah, the the thing the the school wide the, the global network of schools and leaders thinking about rethinking education. So. In terms of the enduring things, to use one of Deborah's words, I would say that kids have always needed and rarely received from schools the capacity to be to have deep conceptual understanding of ideas that matter, high levels of competency and key skills, and strong positive moral character. I'm I'm echoing the definition of learning that we use as conceptual competency character. I think that's always been the case. It was the case when I went to school, and I didn't get any of that stuff. So we've we've never, to me, tackled that need for people to be good with ideas, good with skills, and good people. I think what changes, and I think Deborah would probably agree, the social context changes, cultures shift, the tools change. You know, we deal with different forms of communication, for example, but the enduring need to be expert with ideas, highly skilled, 
and have strong positive moral character, I think is as a constant. Um, I think we get blindsided by the shifts in context and we forget the fundamentals. So I think, you know, I think Deborah and I probably both agree there are some fundamentals that schools have never been very good at. So you're both stressing, I think, the, the need for deep understanding that kids have to understand. How do you know, Deborah, when kids really understand something? What can they do? What should teachers be looking out for? Well, the first, the first kind of indicator is that um, they can talk about it and um, put forward their own view and position and that they can talk about it to other people and even when other people disagree and challenge, that they can, they can defend that position because they, they really understand it um, in a deep kind of way. And in terms of schooling, one of the problems with schooling is the way in which it, it routinely breaks down different parts of the learning to such a kind of micro level that the kind of the overall idea or the underpinning principle is kind of lost in all of that. Uh, but for a student that, that really makes sense of their learning, that's where they start. They start with the bigger concept, the bigger picture, and locate nests, the smaller ideas within it. So for me, I think um, actual speaking does not occur in classrooms sufficiently. And there's rather too much of the kind of listening side of it because the articulation of ideas comes before you're able to write them down. So first and foremost, you are you need to be compelling in the way you articulate. So you want kids, obviously, to be talking in their lessons and not just listening to whoever's speaking uh, at any one time. Kevin, I, I suspect you will agree with that quite strongly. Yeah, very much. And I mean, within the Common Ground, what we've tried to do is take ideas, so exactly what's expressed by Deborah, and create a language for that and a toolkit for that. We basically said, we're going to rethink schooling around five questions. And the first one is define what is learning. And again, conceptual competency characters. So just to build on what Deborah was saying, we absolutely look to that when we ask kids to explain their own understanding and we give them the language of, I used to think that, now I understand that. It's built a lot on other models, like if, if listeners are familiar with understanding by design, the idea that if we actually understand something, we should be able to explain it to others, interpret it or make meaning for ourselves, and then critically apply it authentically and appropriately in new contexts. And, and the thing is, it's not even that difficult to design those assessments, but our system doesn't do it. It doesn't do it. We, we tend to test for other things. So. Do you think the systems, Deborah, are getting worse at uh, assessing what really is important to kids? Well, I think one of the problems that's always a problem for systems is they assess what it is, it is easy to assess, and that is not what necessarily what is important. So whenever I've been involved with um, with high-level assessment, um, looking at how we might construct um, with assessment companies, uh, rather more sensitive assessment that, that measures some of the things that we deem to be important, the barrier is always the technical side of exactly how you do that and how you get standardization across it. So it's kind of like 
assessment drives the way in which we educate rather than assessment being an end point, which might give you a bit of a snapshot on how people are doing. It's kind of, we, we find ourselves in education in an assessment driven routine. And I think, you know, one of the things that we say in high performance learning, which is a kind of major change in terms of understanding about learning and, and human capability is that, you know, the brain is exquisitely plastic and we are building capability within our students, not merely measuring it. So actually, whilst there is a need to measure from time to time. This over-reliance on assessment and measurement is actually quite damaging to exploring the kinds of concepts that Kevin and I have just been talking about because it brings you down to this very low level of granularity, which is just simply, um, it just simply leads to the kind of, you know, talk from the front, recall, um, test, then t- more talk from the front, which is not developing any of the kinds of competencies that we're talking about. So how can we get away from this, Kevin? How can we uh, assess in a way that is uh, relevant uh, and which is helpful and which is helpful in demonstrating what uh, a student can do while at the same time uh, assessing in such a way that will develop that child's learning? What are the things that we should be doing that just aren't do- that isn't happening enough uh, in the world at the moment? Yeah, interesting, Andy. And um, just an observation about the work we're both trying to do, if I can be not too impudent with that. Um, It's easy to sit on a podcast or anywhere else, and I'm sure Deborah would agree, and talk about what's wrong with the current system. Uh, One thing Deborah and I have in common, and I realize I increasingly listen to her, is, is we've both been in this learning profession for a while, And we're both actually actively working to do more than criticize the status quo, but to provide an alternative. So my great passion is answering that question, Andy, and other questions. I I was thinking earlier, if one of the questions was, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing in our approaches to education, what would it be? And for me, it would be the way we assess students, because it drives backwards into a very restricted view of what learning is and what it can be. So as Deborah said, we're feeding a machine, basically. We're feeding an, what is the easiest form of student response to give us norm reference data so we can sort them, so we can sort them into their futures as opposed to we work with five assessment principles. One of them is purpose. And I firmly believe this. The primary purpose of assessment is to provide feedback to learners to improve their learning and feedback to us as practitioners to inform our practice. On a practical side, we've personally kind of thought, well, that machine may not go away. So I'm working actively with another thinker, Jay McTighe from Understanding by Design, on, on a complementary set of qualitative, evidence-based, student-centered approaches where students are given the opportunity to provide evidence that they've gathered to show what they have understood, what they're able to do, and how their character is developing. And um, I have to say, in in a small way, because we are, my organization is small, in the schools with which we're working, it is being wonderfully successful in terms of assessment, improving learning. But, uh, But I just think we have to keep exploring and keep pushing and make partnerships and keep making a noise about we say we want these kinds of kids, 
we test for anything but those kinds of kids. So, so to me, the lack of alignment in our thinking, the lack of an, a systemic, connected, joined-up way of thinking is the bigger problem, and probably the biggest manifestation of that is we, we claim to produce, we use, we use a, a profile of a, of a learner, a, a compelling communicator, a rational problem solver, a balanced person, and then we assess to see if they can recall stuff. <laughs> so, so I think practically, I'm just working away at trying to provide alternatives. I think Deborah's doing the same. How, how do you do that, Deborah? How do you bring out what a child needs to be able to do and to learn, as well as cope with all these other pressures of assessment? Well, I, was, I suppose there's two things I really want to say about that. That um, I, I so agree with everything that uh, Kevin's been saying, and. Um, there are models out there in terms of formative assessment. I mean, there are obviously real experts in the field like Dylan Williams, but, but actually, um, elite sport has incredible, sophisticated models for how you give feedback, which is constructive and which develops individuals to a next level. So it's not like we don't have any examples that we can work from. It's just that we tend not to, to in education, we tend not to be very um, outward looking. We tend to kind of think we have to find all the solutions ourselves rather than, than, um, than actually get out there and, um, and have a look at how other people do it and see if there's anything that we have to learn from it. Because, um, because it's a strange kind of thing, really, because schooling is about learning. Um, but sometimes the education profession are actually quite slow at learning. They're not, you know, we're saying about our students that, for example, we want them to develop curiosity. We want them to develop interest. Um, but, but not, it isn't always the case that every teacher is in that space. You know, some, some teachers are, but some teachers are kind of comfortable in what they know and, and not really exhibiting those characteristics. And I think for me, one of the things that's really important is that if you want students to behave that way, you have to focus on helping your teachers to behave that way too, because they're kind of role modeling. So we have to make teaching a more interesting, exciting thing to do. In short answer to your question about what do you develop? Um, this is my kind of life's work of, um, cognitive um, cognitive competence that um, one of the reasons why I created high performance learning was that um, I've spent a lifetime looking at how people think and learn and particularly how the most successful people people think and learn and one of the things that became well, obvious to me was that um, there's a, a massive degree of consensus about what it is you need to be able to master and do in, and they're quite straightforward things. And some of them we do in school, but we just don't do them frequently enough or bring them sufficiently to the fore. But it's like we've got an absolute canon of research to draw upon, which tells us what makes the difference in the classroom. But we, we just choose to ignore it for the most part because we've got fixations about, you know, what you need to do in the short term in order to jump through the next hoop and, and pass the next test. So in HPL, we have codified all of that into, um, into a set of, um, ways of thinking and ways of learner behaviors, which are really simple and straightforward and which, um, just underpin the way in which schools work. And I'm not saying it's the only way to do it. 
I'm just saying that um, we know from the research that those things are things that make the difference. And certainly when schools try to do them, I think they surprise themselves in terms of what their students can achieve. And for me, that's one of the things that's the heart of all of this is education has for such a long time created these categories of people who will do well, do not so well, you know, kind of really struggle in school. And there's just no case for it anymore. We need to be working. It's interesting. I think if we took high-performance learning and the um, the Common Ground Collaborative as two circles and made uh, uh, a diagram of overlapping Venns, a Venn diagram, I think if we pulled you t- put you together, we'd see a lot of good practice overlapping. You've both mentioned feedback, for example, and I think teachers are getting better at giving good feedback, and there's a lot more emphasis being given to good feedback. What other elements of just good practice, which I think we've all been involved with over the last how many years? I don't know. (laughs) Um, Do you think should be at the centre of how we teach, and which are pretty constant uh, in the way that bring out good learning for kids? Kevin? What, what, what are the best aspects of good practice that you would like to see encouraged? Um, I'm going to slide by that question, and then come back to it. I just <laughs> want to, I just want to agree with Deborah on, for example, the fractals, the patterns we see. A kid has his own proximal development. A teacher has his own proximal development. A school has his own proximal development. Um, I think that I thought I was a curriculum designer many years ago. Now I realize that the work we do, and I'm sure Deborah would agree, we first of all build cultures, and then we build curriculum, and then we build community. I loved uh, Drucker's statement, culture is strategy for breakfast, or Michael Fullan's change is reculturing. So getting back to pedagogy, um, in, our, in the definition of learning we use, and I'm sure we would be very aligned with Deborah, we said um, we're going to look also what experts do. And we, we, we found that experts are experts in the ideas of their field and how they relate to each other. So we're going to develop good conceptual thinkers. And we developed a pedagogy first, con- and we tried to keep it simple, connect to prior knowledge using various forms of investigation, construct a deeper understanding, check it out in various contexts, until you can communicate it. So connect, construct, communicate. When I teach teachers, I use the same methodology. Yes. Everything is the same for the adults as it is for the kids. The patterns are the same. So what we've tried to do, and I think Deborah's tried to do the same, is said, look, we actually know this stuff. It's not that complicated if we just follow what we know. So we said, here's a particular pedagogy for building ideas. Is a slightly different pedagogy for building skills. For example, if you want a kid to know what good looks like, provide them with a model, if it's a skills-based. Deconstruct that model, identify where they stand against a good performance and practice to close the gap. If we want to build character, place them in authentic context, consider how to act, act on it, reflect on it. When we teach teachers, I use exactly the same methodology. So patterns throughout the organization. So that becomes cultural shared beliefs and values, a few shared principles repeated over and over. The, the irony, Andy, is, and I think, Deborah, we actually know how to do this, but exactly what Deborah said, for a learning profession, we are really slow learners. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think this is really important, what you're both saying, that 
you're you're looking at the construction of ways of learning, uh, ways of teaching that will help children learn. And we've we've identified already three things that we would all do. I think give good feedback, give exemplars, and and, and encourage people to live up to those exemplars and and to find out what they can do as a result of being exposed to them. Connect to prior learning. I mean, these are basically good principles of teaching. Deborah, what would you add to that list? I think I think I'd um, I'd add problem solving. So one of the things that I think attracts uh, children and young people is when you present something in a way which is intriguing, because that actually encourages them to um, to to dive in and try and explore it. So it's sometimes you know you could say that's inquiry based learning. But it doesn't, inquiry-based learning doesn't have to be sitting in a group and discovering it all f- for yourself. It may be, but it doesn't have to be. It's just trying to create ideas around learning, which, um, which are not just an absorption of the facts. They're absolutely, they can take really quite conventional, um, uh, curriculum coverage, but it's just the way in which you enter into that piece of work which can make it so much more interesting, especially if you ask a kind of big picture question at the beginning. You know, it just, you know, even young children, they always ask really good big picture questions like, you know, why is the sky blue? You know, what a heck of a question. You know, those sorts of things are worth investigating. And that is really interesting for people in terms of learning because because we all know that motivation is enhanced when you have a desire to actually find out about something. So for me, that's that kind of developing that kind of problem solving approach is, um, is fundamental. And there are some of the kind of characteristics that really successful learners use in their thinking. Actually, they just routinely do that. And for teachers to learn how to, how to actually prompt that, which is part of what we do, um, is, is just it just enables, it unleashes the power of the student. And I think that's kind of part of what we're talking about here is that teaching is in part unleashing the student. And so have great starting points, stimulate that curiosity, get them to want to solve the problem, and then you could do all those other good things. We could go on about this, and I, I would like to explore, maybe at some future date, just... Uh, how the curriculum needs to change that we're talking uh, uh, using with kids and how hasn't it changed and how has it changed but time is pressing so perhaps if there's one thing just to wrap us up uh, Kevin if there's one thing that you'd like teachers to focus on arising from this discussion as they approach the the coming school year what would that one thing be arising from this discussion I think I am tempted to come up with um, too many thoughts right now. I'm going to echo Deborah again. Um, in fact, use some of the same vocabulary. What we do is we we use a planning system, yes. a modular way of working with teachers. It begins actually to use one of your words. Every one of the modules is driven by a compelling question, and it's real-world stuff. Who's in sales? understanding the power and practice of persuasion. Why do we fight? Understanding the causes and consequences of human conflict. So I'm going to go with 
exactly what Deborah said. I'm working with kids all the time. I'm still getting into classrooms. We have the capacity to unleash the tremendous power of kids by not being the person who comes with the answers, but the person who comes with the questions and some simple techniques that we already know to help kids unpack those forms of inquiry, forms of direct instruction, and kids will just blow you away. And what I've been surprised by in a way, Deborah, is how quickly they take over the classroom culture when given the opportunity. It's, it's as if it's in their genes. Once you take the lid off, and just a few simple strategies to get them talking, get them brainstorming. So I just think my simple message would be trust the kids, use use compelling, authentic context, and master really a few basic things we know that work, and you can have a surprisingly large impact in a surprisingly short time. Thank you, Kevin. Deborah. So I absolutely echo what, what Kevin's saying. Um, I guess my... I'm going to therefore direct my comment to the teachers. And um, my piece of advice is cut out the noise, that there's just so much around in terms of what teachers could look at, might do, advice they're being given. And the key to it is concentrating on the things that really matter. And they're really quite fundamental and simple and straightforward, as both Kevin and I have discussed. So don't be distracted. But don't be captivated by some sort of fancy new idea. Just cut out the noise. Cut out the noise, get them engaged, get them excited, and you'll have a great school year. Kevin Bartlett, Deborah Eyre, thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic to, to listen to your ideas. I think in many ways I feel myself going back to the future. And on that note... Kevin and Deborah, thank you very much. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Deborah. Wonderful to meet you. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And you too. And can I just say thank you to our producer, uh, Jason Lasky of Jay Lasky Voices, who has put this uh, podcast together, recorded, edited, and directed it. Thank you very much indeed, Jason. And on that note, goodbye. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Talking About the ITM podcast. Visit conciliumeducation.com. Copyright 2022. Produced by J. Lasky Voices. Providing sound solutions for your voiceover needs. jlaskyvoices.com.